It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 119, King Solomon, the Legend. William Wallace killed 50 men. 50 effort was won. A hundred men with his own sword cut through them like Moses through the Red Sea. What you just heard was the scene where William Wallace's legend grows. Despite setbacks, the legend of William Wallace from Braveheart continues to grow. I like it because it shows how at grassroots level, the legend grows, and by word of mouth, people are moved by legends and stories. And though it can get out of hand, it shows how people are inspired when a hero rises up to pursue justice and the basic rights of man are protected. One of the next things Solomon does is to administrate his kingdom. Like an astute businessman, he sets up 12 governors over the kingdom. He departs from the 12 tribes' approach, questionably departing from the tribal organization of God, and sets up his kingdom with new distinct boundaries to exploit more of the natural borders and resources of each region. I don't get the feel Solomon did this for any reason besides wanting to create a better administration for his kingdom. I don't get there was a sinister purpose in it, but it was against God's original design. Each of the governors was to bring Solomon great quantities of supplies for his royal household, one of the twelve months of the year, and the Bible goes into great detail as to the quantities of grain all the way to the quantities of gold. It seems steep and self-serving, but Israel at this point is on par with world empires in history, with its economy and great quantities of trade products and resources, and its population is termed in 1 Kings 4.20 as numerous as the sand on the seashore, which was the promise to Abraham that God would make him into a great nation as numerous as the sand on the seashore. We're looking at astounding prosperity with millions and millions in its populace. While we gave Joshua's population at around 3 million, We're looking at a populace now of over 10 million in Israel at this time, especially considering the current population of Israel today is around 9 million. While Israel will be nearly depopulated many times over, the land of Israel is ancient. This fact is amazing considering how long we are talking about. Here we are around 1000 BC. Three millennium ago, Israel was in its golden age with a massive population. For this reason, pretty much anywhere in Israel you can dig and find something of archaeological value. Now consider it from the time of Mark Twain. For in 1867, he visited Israel, and this is what he said about it. Mark Twain visited Israel in 1867 and published his impressions in Innocence Abroad. He described a desolate country devoid of both vegetation and human population. 
a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route, hardly a tree or shrub anywhere, even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. He was amazed by the smallness of the city of Jerusalem. A fast walker could go outside the walls of Jerusalem and walk entirely around the city in an hour. I do not know how else to make one understand how small it is. Considering Mark Twain's account, there was only tens of thousands in Jerusalem, much less in the countryside. While in the time of Solomon, we were in the tens of millions countrywide. Reflecting upon Mark Twain's account, this is probably what Israel looked like, say, 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. And again, say 100 AD, after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the countryside. Here we are, around 1000 BC, and Israel is a grand, if not the grand, nation on the planet. And it's altogether fascinating. Here we are, 1000 BC, and to think that prior to this time period, there was hundreds of years of Israel's rule, and there was prior to this, the Canaanite giant period, and prior to this, the antediluvian civilizations. To consider the age of the planet and the previous layers of earth under Solomon's feet is staggering. And then to look ahead and to know that all of this grandeur will be no more. So it's crazy to consider this grandeur that Solomon will be walking into and that one day it will be no more. But here we are, a golden age for Israel. It has arrived. 1 Kings 4.20 The people of Judah were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deers, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River, from Tepsa to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district governors, each in his month, supplied provisions for the King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan, the Ezrahite, wiser than Haman, Kolkah, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. So considering David took over all of these lands by force, Solomon now controlled these lands not by military as much as economic and cultural power. Countries honored and respected and feared Solomon. 
1 Kings 4.32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish, and from all nations people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So Solomon was a political and business genius, and even an early botanist plant life, cedars, and he spoke of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. We talked about the example of George Washington Carver and the peanut, and just think if your king or ruler had these skills already, with unlimited resources at his disposal. It's astounding the property and building projects and wisdom of this king. And the nations are coming to Solomon just to speak with him. His fame was so profound, the nations and world leaders came just to listen to him. The world was in awe of his architecture, wisdom, words, throne. And we see the fullest manifestation of this with the Queen of Sheba later, which relates to the spirit of excellence. But that's at least three podcasts away. All right, sometimes we just can't help but recognize the power of the word and the details in the Bible. For in 1 Kings 4.34, It said, from all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world. Freak me out. What a small world. They all came. People from every nation. I looked up the Hebrew for this word, all. It's all. It's amazing. Solomon would later build a trading fleet, adding to his skills and becoming the only Hebrew naval king. His naval fleet would grow in substantial size. Josephus will mention he sends his fleet to India. And other accounts speak of three-year trading voyages. It's an interesting perspective that the world was a smaller place than we think. In fact, like we spoke about before, it was an older place than we realize. But it was also a smaller world than we realize. That the ancients knew of the world in its farthest extents. Well, probably not the new world to an extent, but the reach of their known world, and there were maps, and that men traveled as far as Britain early on just for ten. Now we see Solomon journeying to India for exotics and gold, but more to come on this. And we'll just leave it here and mention this because the world was a smaller place than we imagine it, or at least our preconceived notions that only the Portuguese and Spanish were world explorers, followed by the French and English from our Western perspective, and it lacks so much understanding of the ancient, I mean ancient, mariners. Hopefully we can cover the ancient mariners just to cover how small the world actually was and discuss some of the ancient maps and of this ancient era. So this is where we arrive at Solomon's relationship with Hiram, the king of Tyre. The story of Tyre from here on out, will be a fascinating one. At this point, they're close friends with Israel and very wealthy as a primary mariner nation in the world. It's horrible future days of idol-worshipping pollution at the hands of Jezebel and the launch of Queen Dido and the start of the Carthaginians and its prophetic fall as prophesied by Ezekiel and its destruction at the hands of Alexander all lay in the future. But at this point, Tyre's a friend to Israel and the sorts of much of the artisans required and the building products for the future temple. The king of Tyre has died, and just like Israel, there was a new king in town. Tyre is about 30-plus miles north of modern Haifa, and most of the old city is in ruins. 
It's an island off the coast of Lebanon, at least before Alexander built his causeway to destroy the city. Hiram was the new king, and Solomon was the ruler in Jerusalem. Both of them, it appears, were young and quite ambitious. Here begins a relationship between two kings. Much we can learn from this on the Message to Kings podcast. Hiram has resources that Solomon requires to build the temple project, one of the most expensive structures to ever be built. 1 Kings chapter 5 When Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent his envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest from every side, and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David, when he said, Your son whom I put on the throne in your place will build the temple for my name. So give orders that cedars of Lebanon will be cut for me. My men will work with yours, and I will pay you for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. And when Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today, for he has given David a wise son to rule over his great nation. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, I have received the message you sent me and will do all you want in providing cedar and juniper logs. My men will haul them down from Lebanon to the Mediterranean Sea, and I will float them as rafts by sea to the place you specify. There I will separate them, and you can take them away, and you are to grant my wish by providing food for my royal household. In this way, Hiram kept Solomon supplied with all the cedar and juniper logs he wanted. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, in addition to 20,000 baths of pressed olive oil. Solomon continued this for Hiram year after year. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom, just as he had promised him, and there were peaceful relations between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month, so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workers. At the king's command, they removed from the quarry large blocks of high-grade stone to provide a foundation of dressed stone for the temple. The craftsmen of Solomon and Hiram and workers from Byblos cut and prepared the timber and stone for the building of the temple. So let's consider what's going on here. Solomon has labors and hard currency money and abundance of food products. Tyre is on an island in the Mediterranean but controls substantial tracts of forest of Lebanon. Hiram has cedars and expert artisans at his disposal. If Solomon was enemies with Hiram, he could steal the cedars but not the artisans. If they were friends, two nations and people are better than one. Solomon has excess gold and food. Hiram has excess cedars and artisans. Friendships and trading lead to the greatest benefit for all nations. Think about it from the, this perspective of friends that you have or the body of Christ. Everyone has unique gifts and talents that need to be put together as a team to work to the most benefit.
and this way they work more as a multiplier. I've heard it said before, when a husband and wife work together, it's not 1 plus 1 equals 2, but 1 plus 1 equals 3 because of God's blessing on their lives and their marriage. So Solomon begins his building project and gets laborers and supplies from Lebanon in exchange for shipments of food to Hiram. The cedars of Lebanon would be cut and transported to Tyre, where they would be barged down the coast, where they would be carried or rolled to Jerusalem. In addition, stones were quarried for the foundation of the temple. All the while, other work was started by craftsmen and artisans who started the work on the objects and walls for the temple, and the gold and precious stones were jeweled into appropriate designs for the temple. In addition, the project would take seven years to complete, and it was started in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. To conclude this episode, A Message to Kings, we covered the abundance of wisdom and blessings on Solomon and the kingdom in the arrangement with Hiram in the beginning of the temple project. Of all the Psalms in the book of Psalms, there is only one truly signed by Solomon as the true author in the King James Bible. It is Psalm 72, and here it is, and before I read it, consider it like some astounding decree of blessing and abundance. It's really incredible, considering the aggressiveness of his declarations in this psalm, that only two became reality. Psalm 72 Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and prosper, abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings bow down to him, and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, and afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy, and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold from Sheba be given to him, may people ever pray for him and bless him all day long, may grain abound throughout the land, and on the tops of the hills may it sway, may the crops flourish like Lebanon, and thrive like the grass of the field, may his name endure forever, and may it continue as long as the sun, then all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed." Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And further, in one of the thousands of sermons by Charles Spurgeon, he titled one of them, The Cedars of Lebanon. As the yeomen cut down the trees and the experts transported them across the tire, and as the barges are loaded and the timbers floated down the coast, and the laborers wait with contrivances we can only imagine to haul entire broad trees overland dozens of miles to be fashioned into the walls of the temple, 
There's much to consider about these ancient towering trees. Researching the cedars of Lebanon, they are some of the strongest trees on the planet because they grow so slow up to 80 feet high and 50 feet wide, and some trees live over 1,000 years old. That's staggering. A thousand-year-old tree? Some accounts have the trees growing even older. Say there was an entire forest of 1,000-year-old trees, and considering the flood was only 1,400 years ago, we could be talking about a forest not cleared since the time of the flood or after. These trees must be considered prime. I mean prime, absolutely prime for construction. And if they held a memory and could speak of what they had seen, they could talk of the world and the rise and fall of man in many a civilization. Psalm 104, 16. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he has planted. Charles Spurgeon put together thousands of sermons, one of them titled The Cedars of Lebanon. We wrap up this episode with the words of Charles Spurgeon related to the cedars of Lebanon in this verse. There is something of the sap in us. Let us pray for more. We live upon Christ. If our hearts do not awfully deceive us, you and I can say, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is seeking sand. The Lord knows our hearts, and he himself knows that we can say, as Peter did, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. But, oh, is there one among you that is content with himself? I am not. I am ashamed of myself, forgetting the things that are behind. I would press forward to that which is before, not as though I had already attained it. Either were already perfect. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is such a height of glorious independence of man and a confidence dependence upon God. And there is such a blessed internal joy and peace, such a divine fullness of sap, that we may yet have that I pray none of you rest till you obtain it to the praise and glory of his grace, who has made you accepted and the beloved. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as the entire nation of Israel is focused on the Temple Project. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, or share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.